All right, folks, <laughs> welcome to podcast number four with Totem Realty Advisors. Um, since the last time we were with you, the world has changed uh, just a little bit. I think it was exactly the day after we filmed our last episode that uh, the unfortunate situation of Russia deciding to invade the Ukraine took place. Um, so we're 13 days into that conflict. And while this podcast is definitely about real estate and bourbon and current events, um, we'd be remiss not to address the fact that um, there's a lot of heavy hearts in the world today, lots of conflict and um, discussions about peace and war and love and hate. Um, complicated topics that I don't think we will spend too much time as a group talking about today, but it certainly impacts our world. It impacts real estate, impacts the cost of goods sold, and um, we'd be remiss not to send our thoughts and prayers to those people who are being impacted on a daily basis um, in real time while we sit here in the comfort of this beautiful office building in uh, downtown Pittsburgh. So um, with that said, the, uh, the reality is that this conflict and this international disruption changes the way things get priced and therefore changes the way that real estate gets paid for. And it's pretty interesting. Our last podcast, if you remember, we talked about uh, the return to work. And in less than two weeks, the return to work is certainly impacted by the fact that I think Paige mentioned earlier today uh, to me that gas prices in 13 days here in Pittsburgh have grown by 75 cents, which is roughly a 20 to 30% increase in less than two weeks. So, hey, everybody, come back to work. But guess what? Your cost of commuting just went up by 30%. So how's that play out in the real world? Yeah, I mean, probably not great. I think we had... Um and I don't know that we ever discussed it on a podcast, but we've been having a lot of conversations um, amongst ourselves and with clients of, um, you know, difficulties in not just hiring and finding talent, but retaining it because there are companies from California that are paying people in Pittsburgh a California salary to work remotely um, and just kind of poaching them from these local companies that, um, are paying market wages for Pittsburgh, but now they're competing with, you know, Palo Alto companies. Um, so yeah, now you add the the uh, the push for employers to get their people back in the office, and it's like every time we just start to get back up on our feet, something comes and like clobbers us over the head. And again, like in the greater context of the world, like we are very fortunate here, so it you know. I don't want to come across as like it's all about us and it's all about real estate, but in our world, it's like every time things start to open up and start to feel like it's getting back to normal, some other factor comes in from stage left and just jacks it all up again. So yeah, now you have people who, <clears throat> if, uh, you know, you have to drive to work every day, the year, your costs of adding gas to your car just nearly what increased by 50 percent not yeah. even if you're operating Close a company it? you have to think about these things not only is your cost of real estate going up the cost of employees are going up the cost of retention is going up you know you know we just get through covid and think okay we got through that it's over next yeah. thing you know as you evaluate knock on wood with that well it, 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 for the majority of people wanting to come back and, and repopulate the offices, they're thinking, okay. Felt like we were over the hump. We felt like we were over the hump. We've addressed the impact of, of, of that issue and the costs associated with that issue. And we know we're going to be experiencing additional costs from just everything that you have to do in an office space now. Then you have the cost of inflation, and now we have this dramatic increase in the cost of commuting. And at some point in time, those have to be factored in. If you're thinking about operating a company, you're not just looking at today's cost, but what is this the downstream impact of that? Mm -hmm. So these are all things that I think are going to affect repopulating office space. And Do you think it's like short-term or like... 
six months, 12 months? I mean, this gas thing, how long do you think this lasts? Like, do you think this is a real return to work issue or do you think that this is just a a near-term blip on the radar screen? Well, this is an absolute rabbit hole that I know that you don't want to go down, but the the main big spice spike in in gas prices occurred because of the war. But that price was escalating higher and higher and higher. The gas prices have come to a point where they've almost doubled from a year ago. Right. And that's not that's a lot more than 75 cents a gallon. You know, gas prices were up in a dollar a gallon before uh before the war ever started. And that's a result of, you know, lots of policy, energy policy, right? And you know, that's really a wormhole that I don't know whether anybody wants to go down. But not with I, you, and not without bourbon. No, <laughs> so no. But I think that that's something that you know you have to talk about it. If there's this transition to green energy, and yet the energy infrastructure is all about oil and gas. And you're not producing any of it in the United States, and now you have turmoils around the, you know, the rest of the globe and the oil-producing countries that aren't even talking to America. I, I, I think that that's going to have a dramatic effect on you know, how we look in the future. So I don't yeah. think that it's something that it's a blip, that it's a one-month thing or a two-month thing or a three-month thing. I think it's something that you're going to have to address at least for another year. Now, we're coming up on a time where, what day is today? Today is the 9th? 9th, Okay, it will be two years when COVID actually hit us on the 15th. Is it Friday, the 11th? I thought it was the 12th. The 12th? Oh, Saturday. And they officially shut things down here in Pennsylvania on the 17th. Two years ago, they shut everything down, and now you have this impact here. I I, I think it's going to be a lot a lot longer than a month. Yeah, so, and just to to circle back to my thought, because I don't think I was uh, super clear, got it all out, but so not just employee commutes, there's already, you know, a push to get employees back. You're going to have employees now resisting it because not only do they, in a lot of cases, not want to go back to the office, but now you add this factor where it is going to almost penalize them financially to commute every day. Right. And on top of that, you have the other thing that we talked about last week with the return to work is the the pass-throughs. So the operation of the office buildings and the spaces that these companies are inhabiting is going to get more expensive. Um, all of these increased costs and all of these inflationary excesses, the landlords aren't going to incur those. Those are going to get passed down. So then spaces get more expensive. And... My concern with that is at what point, or and maybe it doesn't happen, and I guess maybe how long this lasts will determine whether or not this happens, but at what point will costs increase so much for such a long period of time and employers will get sick of arguing with or enticing their employees to incur the cost of coming back to the office and they're just going to say, whatever, we did hybrid for two years, we can do it again, or we can go full remote because everything just keeps getting more expensive and we're sick of fighting this battle. Price elasticity is always driven by alternatives and substitutes. All right, so there is a, there is a tolerance as to what price will be absorbed, and then it reaches a point where you're just simply going to do something else. The hybrid work model, stay at home, that's already been established as something you can do. So if I'm someone who's directing a company and thinking, you know, all right, we wanted these people to come back because we know we understand why people, you know, should be populated together, but the cost of getting them back and the cost of employees to cover the impact of everything that's going on right now, it's just driving us to do something differently. And I think that's the stay-at-home model. Well, we haven't done a lot of crystal balling on this podcast, but it is curious to me if you crystal balled out 12 months from now has the return to work um mantra is this just a headwind or is this like a brick wall like is this really we're gonna throw our hands up and just stick with the hybrid thing or do you think this is just a short-term headwind if we could go back in time 12 months from now Okay, this is. I've got a thought, but well, this is me. I think the political climate in let's just specifically speaking of America. Okay, I think the political climate here has reached their tolerance 
of we're getting tired of this. We're tired of COVID. We're tired of inflation. And trust me, people are going to get really tired of $5 a gallon gas. Um, that's going to change. I'm already tired of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's going to change the uh, administration, not necessarily the presidential ad- administration, but the House and the Senate, I think, are going to change completely. Yeah, this is, I mean, this, this is, is where I just hole. get frustrated, yeah. um, not with you yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't understand how it always gets, and again, I don't enjoy politics. Um, I find it frustratingly inefficient. Um, and, uh, but I don't understand how this is an administration thing. Um, when it, the things that are happening in the world are not really controlled by the current administration, the things that are happening that are driving these, these prices up and that are raising inflation like, what hand did the administration, this administration, have in creating that? Well, and That's what I don't get. Yeah, and I think that is definitely a rabbit hole for a politics podcast that we aren't. A post-Lent. No, bourbon. not even a post-Lent. I think someone who's, like, really focused on the policy, I don't think it's an administration thing. I think it's just a policy impacts uh, the value of the dollar, not just here in America, but throughout the globe. So our policy, other countries' policies, I think that that, um, it is outside of our expertise, but it, it's it out- certainly impacts it. There's it, no it, doubt about it's it. It's outside of our expertise, but you, you, you'd have to be in denial to know that if you stopped American energy production, okay, that's going to have an impact on the rest of the globe and, and the rest of costs everywhere. But what's interesting is we don't even get that much of our oil from Russia. Most of the United States oil imports come from Canada, Mexico, and Saudi Arabia. So how has this conflict already impacted pricing so much It's in, this in addition to, not in lieu of. Wait, okay, what? the prior administration, I know you don't want to hear this, but there was a point we were a net exporter of oil and gas. Now we are a net importer of oil and gas. There had to be a reason for that. We shut that down based on we stopped production here in this country. Okay, if so you stop point. production in this country, you're going to stop the actual amount of uh, you know capacity of energy that's here. So that's when you had to go to other areas, such as Russia, such as Venezuela, such as Saudi Arabia. So, it, I mean, his earlier point was that it was already elevating gas prices policy. Um, so now this is just a compounding factor coupled with anytime there's conflict or uh, uncertainty locally, nationally, globally, it just causes friction and friction causes price increases. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, not going down the policy rabbit hole or the political makeup, um, you know, Paige, your thoughts on 12 months from now, is this a headwind for return to work or is $5 a gas like the straw that breaks the camel's back and the big employers say, we're done. We're just going to let people work from wherever. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think it's interesting. I mean, I think the people, I mean, by and large, and not across the board, but I think a lot of people who are coming down and they're commuting to the downtown offices um, and driving to the downtown offices. Which, by the way, I have the longest commute I've had since COVID today. Time-wise? Time-wise. Why? Because of the weather. No. No? Traffic. I'm not, traffic. I don't have a pen dot traffic counter, mm-hmm. but I would contend that there was more traffic on the roads today than there has been since COVID happened. But anyways, I'll let you finish. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um. So I think the the people that are coming down to the downtown offices and driving down are probably mostly the people who would be less impacted or who could stomach that increase in cost of gasoline. Um, so I think for the office economy, I, I, I hope it's just a headwind. I like to think it's just a headwind. But um, I think there are other... 
I think where it's going to be most impactful is like what we were talking about before is is hourly um, employees who are in the service oriented industries. Um, that yep. that is a much more impactful cost increase um, in getting them to come back to work or even or even development like like fast food chains. Um, you know, so not an office implication or a return to work implication, but a real estate development implication is, you know, we've talked to a lot of franchisees and a lot of business operators where they would open five new locations this year if they could staff them. And I think this is going to, those people, the the demographic makeup of the people who were most heavily impacted by COVID, uh, I think will be, unfortunately, you know, just as they're getting up off their feet, are going to be the same population is going to be most impacted by the price increases and they're not going to be able to tolerate them as much as the people who would be coming back to the office. Yeah, I think the, the basically the cost aspect of getting employees, it's going to hurt downtown more than it hurts the suburbs. You know, it's just less of a price structure there. You know, you don't have to pay for parking. There's not the cost of commuting as bad. But still, yeah, but there's, no but public there's buses. Trans- yeah, there's, yeah, no public there's a lot better public transportation suburbs. downtown. So I think this could be something that might be a... Uh, uh, good for the not good for the CBD, but where the CBD could have the advantage over the suburbs. Mm. It's interesting because there. I mean, obviously, it costs more money to drive your car. It costs more money to drive the bus, but that incremental cost gets passed off to more users. Um, you know, my take is it's a headwind because um, I still fundamentally believe that people want to be around people and therefore will flock back to the office and all the executives that we're working with right now, you know, by and large, those projects are how do we get people back to the office? How do we create spaces that um, effectually or effectually like force people back to the office, like give them the, the experience that makes them want to leave their home to come get downtown or get to their suburban office space. So I don't know. It's an interesting one. I I, I think that, you know, it's the question of, People will come back to work, but how long is this headwind going to be facing us? Right. Yeah, and some of the things I heard were saying, um, you know, increases in the cost of fuel. They were saying for years, which shocked me. Yeah, so the- short. So uh, <laughs> I can't find any words today. Like we're <laughs> it's so you're not fresh. Any I know we're so. This is such a recent development, and the fact that, and it was even last week, someone was saying mm-hmm. that the. Um, Specifically, they were talking about airlines and the cost of fuel and how that's going to impact airline tickets. And they said that there will likely be an increase in ticket prices for the next several years was what they quoted because of this. Um, so that's kind of a uh, a scary prospect. But um, hopefully if, if inflation in other areas can uh, balance out um, – and taper off a little bit, then the the increased gas prices, um, you know, would could be stomached. But well, it, how I'd ask the question: How can the inflation in other areas go down? Let's just say the cost of fuel. Everything that occurs in this country has to be delivered. It has to be shipped. It has to come on a truck. It has to travel some way that requires fuel. If fuel has gone up and energy has gone up, you know, there's no way that those costs are going to come down. And that will continue until that thing gets handled. You know, I don't know whether you've looked at your heating bill or your trash bill or any other kind of service. There's there's always a fuel surcharge that's attached to it. And if it's not a separate line item of a fuel surcharge, it's an increase in costs. So everyone will be facing that. I feel like this needs to get fact-checked, so I shouldn't even say it. But supposedly a box of, like, you know, you go to Costco, you buy that big, huge, like, 24 by 24 Mm -hmm. box of potato chips. It's got the little bags inside of it. The price of that has gone up 30% in two weeks. There's nothing that's changed other than fuel. Like, the cardboard didn't get more expensive in two weeks. Um, It's crazy. Well, the guy that delivered the cardboard... As a fuel charge, the right. guy who who had to drive to assemble the—I mean, just it's that trickle up, if you will—that there's it's just 
the, the energy costs are just factored into everything. So you think it's long term, Paige, and I think it's a headwind. I, it's 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 a headwind. The question is, how long is the storm going to last? Right. I think over a period of time, policy will bring it back to control. We had very high gas prices at one point in time that went down. And I think that kind of goes back to what is your energy policy? Are you producing uh, energy? And obviously, if there's no war going on, that has a huge effect on something. But it's just how are you controlling it? And I think there's long-term things that can be done. But that there's in the short term, this is get used to it. Yeah. Strap in because it's going to be a storm. Yeah, so before we move on to the, the actual topic of the day, um, I did uh, tune into a presentation yesterday um, where, and I'm, I'm going to say his name incorrectly, I'm sure, but Gus Fauché, Voucher? Yeah, Fauché? Voucher, I think. Don't know how to say your name, Gus, but I think you're brilliant. Um, <laughs> we all think you're brilliant. <laughs> he, he did a presentation for the Institute for Entrepreneurial Excellence. and um, Chief economist for PNC Bank, yes, by the way. yeah. Um, some of his key takeaways, I mean, he actually, I was curious, I was anticipating his presentation to see what he would say about the current events of the world, but he actually, I mean, his outlook was pretty positive. I mean, he said the U.S. economy is still strong despite inflation and despite all of the conflicts in Ukraine and the chaos with Russia. Um, and he said, you know, his projection is that there will be continued but slow recovery through the rest of 22 and 23. Um, you know, and he said that as GDP improves and inflation subsides, um, and he said that, you know, there is minimal direct impact on to the U.S. from Russia, but really it's the potential destabilization of the Eurozone because of the conflict in Russia that could potentially be more impactful to us. Um, but, I mean, overall, he, he did say that, um, you know, he thinks we're in a, in a growth pattern and was pretty optimistic. So to, to cap the doom and gloom of our current event to open the podcast, I just wanted to mention that. Um, yeah, and I think that's consistent with most economists that we've been paying attention to that long-term they think that uh, – there's real uh, short-term inflationary pressure, but it will steady itself out over the next 24 months. So that's the hope. Yeah, and I think America as an economic engine is it, it's unparalleled. You know, we have a higher GDP than anyone, and always have. We produce a lot. We are we are a very we consume a lot. We consume a lot, but we <laughs> produce a lot. But we are. We are very. <laughs> we're the best and the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, actually. Well, we're certainly. Let's write that down. Yeah, I mean, but there's. Uh, we're a different animal than the rest of the planet, but uh, um, I, I think that over a long period of time, that will come through. But I think that there's also, sometimes economists, especially economists for banks are trying to put the uh, the silver lining around a cloud. There is going to be, you know, any any kind of impact of, there's a certain segment of the population that's going to be more impacted than others, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So you think he's just no, fluffing think, it up to make everybody no, panic less? No, I think <laughs> to say we have a strong uh, economy, that's accurate. We do have a strong economy. We're, we're, we, we have a lot of growth here, but there are a lot of things that have an impact impact on the economy. And they're, they are going to hold us back. But I think over a period of time, we're always, you know, that American economic engine, which is better than anyone else in the, in the, in the globe. But even if we just bring it all the way back to like our little world, like Totem's little world, um, which today might be know, 50 or 60 active projects. Um, when COVID happened, it stopped. I mean, technically it didn't. We stayed pretty busy. But for all intents and purposes, the real estate market in terms of transactional market came to a screeching halt. True. Um, you know, two weeks into this very unfortunate situation in Europe and activity is as robust as I've ever seen it. I mean, as a, as a real estate market here in good old Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, things are 
as active as they've ever been. So it's an interesting dynamic and one that you feel guilty kind of participating in, but, um, it's a unique situation that obviously over the next couple podcasts, we'll see how it plays out. But, um, yeah. And I think it's going to, like I said, it's there, there are always industries that are going to do better in, in, in certain times and, you know, growth is always going to occur here. There are some places where it's going to be a little rougher than others, but, uh, you know, for the most part, I think that there's always going to be that kind of activity that's around here. And even during COVID, there were people that are, you know, the, the transactions stopped and everyone was trying to figure out what the hell was going on. But once they kind of saw, oh, this is a path here, or this is a, this is what my idea is about this, they, they put it into play. Sure. And I think you're going to have the same kind of thing here. So... Um as you guys may be starting to get used to, we always talk about a current event, which this one's a little heavy than normal. Um, and we usually talk about a bourbon, which is uh, blatantly uh, missing from this podcast. I don't know if Paige wants to give any color because you've been very colorful about that topic <laughs> recently. My pious colleagues. <laughs> um. Oh, <Ooh>. <laughs> Yikes. That was even. Yeah. I would love to quote you prior to us starting rolling as to what. No. Kevin and Michael are abstaining from alcohol for Lent. Um, Has nothing to do with piety. Okay. I think it kind of does. Aren't they one and the same? Abstaining from alcohol during Lent and piety? Yeah. I don't think so. One has nothing to do with the other. But it felt like a really good time to take a reset, and that's Uh, what we're doing. And I'm joining them in solidarity, which I thought was a really nice gesture, but I've just been getting made fun of all day today. (laughs) I have not made fun of you. You haven't. I would never do that, Paige. (laughs) So instead of bourbon, we have... So today is brought to you by Pellegrino. Pellegrino. And we won't spend any time talking about Pellegrino, but... um, Uh is a good way to get into topic number three, which is always a real estate topic. And the hope is there's return to work mm-hmm. and where we were headed before you know, this kind of hiccup was. So you're returning to work and you're trying to sign a new lease or uh, negotiate terms of a lease. And there's this really important thing called credit. And yeah, and that was a pretty good segue. We were struggling with how we were going to segue it. Uh, but I don't even feel like we should make it specific to return to work. We really just want to talk about tenant credit. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you're signing a lease, tenant credit is a substantial issue, and that's something that you've been learning a lot about recently. It sure is. Um, yeah. So, and I think when, um, you know, being new in this industry, um, some of the I want to say like smaller footprint um, clients that I have been working with, um, mostly in the retail space, and they're small business owners, and this was a new process for them as well. When we're going through the leasing process, um, it always takes them off guard when the potential landlord wants to see their operating history and their financials. Um, So, you know, I spend a lot of time explaining to them that that's not a personal attack um, and why that is the case. Um, And it's not just for independently owned business operators. Um, It's for everyone. Um, So, you know, I think talking a little bit today about tenant credit, operating history, financial requests and what to expect there, um, and, you know, the landlord's capital risk um, and, you know, why they ask for all of that information. And then also how tenant credit can impact uh, the value of an asset. Um, you know, we're working on a number of properties looking to, to ground lease them right now and um, have a lot of, I'm sure, frustrating conversations with people because they want a price. And it's, there's not a price. It depends on who the tenant is and it depends on their credit because, Literally, just in round numbers, I mean, you can have a national credit tenant who is maybe a triple net investment with their name on a 10-year lease there is trading at a 4.5% cap rate. They're willing to pay $100,000 a year in ground lease. 
but then you have another tenant who was willing to pay $130,000 a year, but if they're at a 7.5% cap rate, that's roughly a half million dollar difference in the value of the asset. So that was fast. For the less, for the less rent. Correct. Right. Yes, mm-hmm. the person paying a hundred thousand dollars. So Starbucks is less. willing to pay a hundred thousand dollars a year in rent. Yeah. And Sally Joe's car wash is willing to pay one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year in rent. There's more value to the Starbucks. The Starbucks would add about a half a million dollars additional value to that piece of property, which prior to two years ago, I would not have understood even slightly. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's something that's an Neither interesting Neither does Sally Joe, by the way. <laughs> right? Yes, I've yes. had some of those conversations yes. recently, too. They, they don't understand that the long-term asset value is based on long-term. You know, we know you're going to be around for a while. And it really goes back to they are creating or augmenting the value of an asset. Because once a building is built, once the bricks and mortar are spent, it's who's in there and who's paying the rent and how how guaranteed is that? Yeah, how likely is it how that that rent check shows that up I'm every month? I'm going to get paid, you know, and then that's truly what people want to know if you're looking at the true value of an asset. Yeah. So should so I have you know for the people who don't play in this world or don't really have exposure to um, you know the investment side of things mm-hmm. where they're talking about things in terms of cap rates um, talk can you talk a little bit about what dictates the cap rate that a tenant can pool in on an investment so I you mentioned the term they're willing to commit to you mentioned the risk involved with whether or not a check is going to show up, but also, I mean, industry, um, what are some of the other factors that impact where certain tenants will trade on like a triple net investment? Yeah. So I think we should probably back up real quickly and talk about cap rates for half a second or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It is a unique situation if you haven't dealt with it, where actually the lower the number, so if the cap rate is 5%, the value is higher. So it's an inverse relationship to the normal kind of uh, train of thought because effectively you take the net operating income, which is the total cash received on the the property, and you divide it by the cap rate, um, which we'll get to what dictates cap rates, but um, it's something that not a lot of people see in their day-to-day. But effectively that same $100,000 of rent divided by 5% is worth more than that $100,000 divided by 10%, right? Um, So I think it's important to kind of start there as a baseline, just really understanding when we say cap rate. Effectively, it's what's the rate of return that the investor is going to get on each incremental dollar? That That he's willing to get based on the credit of that tenant. Right. And, you know, obviously the credit is incredibly important. The next part would be the term. How long am I going to get that return? Let's pause on credit for a second. Credit is dictated by size of company, how long that company's been in business, what's their balance sheet look like, what's their debt look like, how much cash do they have on hand, um, are they making a million dollars a year, are they making $500 million a year? Like Those are the things that no different than when a bank analyzes you and your personal finances to give you a loan on a mortgage of your house. Um, landlords are looking at the tenant and saying, what does their financial wherewithal look like? So when we say credit, it's really, what's their ability to pay the rent and for how long of a period of time? And the smaller the company, the more impact that specific real estate deal has on their credit. Because if it's a smaller company, a lion's share of their profit and loss could be driven by how much they pay in rent. I mean, Amazon, whether they have one location or 500 locations, doesn't impact their ability to pay rent. But if you're a small business that has one location and, you know, 10% of your uh, annual cash flow is going to rent, that changes your credit profile drastically. Mm -hmm. Um, And the more complicated you get in the commercial real estate world, uh, the more of an art it becomes. It's less science um, and it's a lot of art. So, And 
And Michael, I think you were gonna, you were starting in on a thought, but I also wanted to ask, um, how does the cap rate that is assigned to a certain transaction, um, how much of that is just based on the tenant versus what the actual asset is and the actual class of the asset? Does that have any impact on the cap rate? Like, say it's um, an industrial, a single tenant industrial facility versus a multi tenant retail. Does the actual asset class impact, or is it strictly the tenancy and the creditworthiness of the tenants? It's both. It's it's both, and then it's the different investor pools also. You know, there's certain I- I- investors that only want triple net industrial product. Okay, so consequently, that drives the cap rate down because they're all chasing after the same dollar. Cap rate down, value up. Value up. So this, I am willing to pay more for this. This is the investor perspective in. I'm willing to pay more for this asset because I know I have to beat the other guys for you to sell it to me, so I'm willing to accept less of a return to get the asset in my portfolio. Whereas if there's less investors in a class or there's more risk attached to that class, let's just say, I don't know, um, retail right now, you know, people might value it as more risk, but there's less people that want to buy that retail asset. Yeah. And in today's world, like let's use a real world example, industrial, office and retail. Cap rates in industrial are the lowest they've ever been. It's a very hot commodity. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of capital throughout the globe that's chasing industrial investment because over the course of the next 10 years, they listen to guys like Gus from PNC or from PNC and they say, "We think it's a safe bet that industrial across the board is going to perform better than average. So we want to invest our dollars in industrial. Therefore, there's a lot of people saying that People are willing to pay more money. Cap rates go down. Values go up. Office, which was the darling a few years ago, not so much a darling because what's going on with return to work. And then retail, um, yeah, I mean, cap rates today for non-trophy retail, um, especially multi-tenant <laughs> retail whereby you do have you know, the small businesses of America in those spaces, cap rates are are higher than they've been because the risk profile has changed. Yeah, and that segues into the cap rate's going to depend on where the asset is. You know, the cap rate's going to depend on... <laughs> Don't we know that? <laughs> yeah, well, no. I mean, it's so... It's, it, it's, there's, there's any number of moving parts, and then there, you know, the flavor of the month thing kind of happens, too. Industrial's really hot now, whereas retail used to be hot, where it... You know, at one point in time, it was limited service hotels. And another point in time, it's CBD office space. And you know, so there's, there's all sorts of factors that go into how you determine a cap rate. But one of the main things is, what is who is the tenant and what is their credit? Yep. So in talking to um, people that would be, that, you know, aren't our peers in the real estate industry that, you know, they lease space or thinking about leasing space or operate their own business. Um, What would you tell them to expect when looking to lease space as far as the requests that they're going to get from the landlord into their operating history and financials? Well, I think they need to think about what's the space they're looking at in terms of how it meets their needs today versus what improvements need to happen to that space in order to meet their needs. And what I mean by that is if you can move into a space exactly how it is today and the landlord doesn't have to invest anything, then the landlord's risk, if you're unable to pay your rent, is relatively limited, right? But is there not an opportunity cost there? There's an opportunity cost, absolutely. But I would say in the normal course, the landlords are willing to take on the opportunity cost um, unless you're like in a really booming market where there's a lot of activity and a lot of people fighting for the same space. But in a normal environment whereby, you know, there's not a lot of competition for spaces, um, the less work that needs to happen, the less risk the landlord takes, therefore the less concern he has about the tenant's credit. So from a tenant perspective is 
how much risk am I asking this landlord to take on for my operation? And that's going to change between one landlord and another. Sure. And building to building and building tenant to building tenant. building to tenant tenant. But the same tenant with the same credit profile could look at two different buildings. One building needs $50,000 worth of work. The other building needs $500,000 worth of work. The questions from those two landlords are going to be substantially different questions, even though the credit profile of the tenant hasn't changed. But I think to your question, let's focus on the example where they need $500,000 worth of work. What are those questions going to be? Um, I mean, the first questions are going to be, how long have you been in business? How much cash do you have on hand? Where is your revenue come from? How does your profit work? Um, I want to see two, three, maybe four years of financial statements to be able to prove out your ability to pay. Um, and then I want to know that the percentage of rent compared to your overall budget is in line with what seems to be a reasonable amount so that you can not only pay your rent, but you can pay your employees, pay your uh, suppliers so that you can actually continue to create that revenue stream. Um, and then the next level is, okay, so we've decided that we think you can pay your bills, but we want to ensure you can pay your bills. So... Will you give us a personal guarantee? Um, will you give us a letter of credit from your bank that this money's there and um, we can collect on that money when the time comes where you haven't paid? And I, I think it's probably worth um, just talking about, since you've mentioned it, um, in those instances of what the landlord would ask for to kind of collateralize their risk, um, what is the most favorable to the tenant and landlord, and what is least favorable to the tenant or landlord and landlord? Separate. Separate. Because they're not the same. They're not the same at all. <laughs> no. Right. Let's stick with opposite, the tenant. Opposite yeah. ends of the spectrum. Yeah, let's stick with the tenant. I think the, the most favorable outcome from a tenant's perspective is securitization for the lease is a fixed security deposit. Landlord, I will give you one month, two months, even three months of rent in anticipation of this lease as a security deposit to say, if for whatever reason I fail, this is the way you can recoup any exposure you had. And it's a fixed amount and therefore reduces the tenant's risk. Um, That's, that would be for the smaller yeah. tenant, you know, yeah. but the, you know, for example, you know, there's certain tenants that they won't pay a security deposit because yeah. they have so many lo locations. If they did, they'd be tying up, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So, but that ten that yeah. tenant has already passed the credit test. They're bulletproof. Yeah. But the um, small yeah. to middle market yeah, the client. Small to middle market client. Yeah. Yeah. Reed mm -hmm. Smith isn't just uh, giving a three month security deposit. Really no, exciting. but you know, so we won't specifically talk about Reed Smith, but law firms are a good example. So law mm -hmm. firms are driven. Their P and L or their revenue stream is driven by the people who work there. Yes. It's a partnership. If those people decide to walk out the door, there are no more widgets to sell. Like they're Correct. not selling boxes. They're not selling a specific thing. So very often law firms personally guarantee leases because the only guarantee for that landlord that that revenue stream is going to be there. Is that the partner stay in place? Is that the partner stay in place? That's yes, actually, I had no idea. And yeah. it's That's the wild. partners of the law firm, jointly and severally. Hmm. You know, they're, they guarantee the obligation. Yikes. And our peers across the country right now that are listening are probably saying, oh, we never have our law firm signed personally. We get it. Like in a perfect world, you don't want your client to have to sign personally on a lease. But a uh, law firm is just a good example of a business that doesn't have any assets other than the people. So when it's just a lot of like human capital, then those like the, the human capital or intellectual capital intensive they would collateral, you know, look for collateralization not with any kind of output, but with correct a personal correct. guarantee. Yep. And then the third common one is called a letter of credit, and what that means is you go to your bank and you say to the bank, "Listen, I have half a million dollars invested with you. I want to be able to go to the landlord and give them a note, and that note says." that I've got $500,000 here, but 100000 of it, I'll never touch. It's going to be in this bank no matter what. So if I default on my lease and I stop paying my rent, 
the landlord has the ability to go to the bank and say, I want that $100,000 and it's mine. And you sign a contract between the bank and the landlord and the tenant that says, yes, Mr. Landlord, if I don't pay my rent, you have the authority and the legal right to that $100,000. Um, it's not ideal for the tenant because it forces that $100,000 to stay in the bank. Mm -hmm. And the banks don't like doing it, so they actually charge you a fee to keep that money in the bank. And no interest earned on that? Or is it just nominal interest you'll, earned? Nominal. You'll earn, you'll it's earn like a, interest, it's but like it's a nominal. Checking account. It's, not, yeah. it's not going to cover the cost of the fee yeah. to right. keep the letter of credit in place. So um, much like all the things in the space we play in, it's complicated and it's tenant-specific, it's city-specific, it's uh, landlord-specific. And... And just back to the personal guarantee really quickly. Um, what does that, like, I think we should talk more about that because those partners of the law firm that are signing the personal guarantee and something real crazy happens and that law firm dissolves or defaults right. with the personal guarantee in place, then what are the landlord's ramifications? Well, depending on how the options. document's drafted, the the landlord has the ability to go and pierce the partnership and say the partnership no longer has any money, so you, Paige Myers, have a million dollar home and a five hundred thousand dollar car and you know, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in your IRA. Like those numbers are backwards because you wouldn't have two hundred and fifty thousand in your IRA and a half a million dollar car. But um, the example is they could then go and say to a judge, Paige, in conjunction with Kevin and Michael in this partnership, they agreed to guarantee me a million dollars, so I want to go get $333,000 from each of them. Um, and then if Michael doesn't have any money and Kevin doesn't have any money, so now all of a sudden Paige's million-dollar home is at risk. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's why personal guarantees are bad. <laughs> but well, it, they're not necessarily bad because on the flip side, and I have had I mean, former it's not tying partners, up any of your, your cash. Correct. It doesn't tie up any cash. And if you believe in your financial wherewithal and you are willing to give that personal guarantee, you can avoid a lot of other headaches with landlords. And sometimes it's perception. Like when a landlord says, I want you to personally sign this lease, if you say no, it just tells a story that you're not very confident. Um, so I definitely have worked with clients and partners in the past who have without, I mean, they make sure the personal guarantee is drafted in a way that feels comfortable, but they are willing to sign personally because they believe in themselves. It gives the landlord confidence and you move on your merry way. Yeah, as long as we're sticking with the law firm example, law firms are notorious for spending a lot of money inside their tenant suites. Mm -hmm. So you're asking the landlord to come up and post, I don't know, two, three million dollars in tenant improvements that are way over and above what the existing space is. Signing the personal guarantee says, yes, you're going to get your money back and I'll back that. And you didn't, other than just saying, my word is my bond, um, and I have the assets to back it, now the landlord is going to front all those tenant costs. So mm -hmm. it does, it, there is a reason for it. Again, yeah. it's what risk is the landlord willing to take based on how he thinks he's secured it. And then... With that, because I, I genuinely don't know the answer to this question, um, if you're signing that personal guarantee, then you relinquish all of your personal financials to the landlord? Or how does that... How do, they, how do they judge that you actually have enough assets to back their risk? If they really care about the personal guarantee and it really is impactful on making the deal, then Yes in addition to the business financials, then the people signing the personal guarantee would have to give some type of personal financial statement. Um, and that could come in a whole bunch of different forms, but the simple really, answer is yes. Yeah, it really depends on who the person is. And, yeah. yeah. Interesting. But the important thing to take from that is we've just described 50 different variables in how someone would determine the credit or underwrite the credit of a tenancy. So you 
pretty much want to know these are all my options. These are all the things that I should be considering. And most people don't look at it that that way. There's a lot of moving parts to just discussing credit with a tenant. Yeah, and I think um, as we wrap this episode up, I think it's um, important to talk about this kind of early on because at the end of the day, almost every conversation we have about real estate moving forward, this is in the underlying kind of baseline of what's going on. I mean, this credit conversation could be a part of every podcast moving forward because in theory, every single piece of the real estate uh, ecosystem is driven by what is the credit of the tenant and whether that's an apartment tenant, you know, somebody who's leasing an apartment all the way up to Amazon, the credit of the tenant dictates the value of the real estate, dictates the terms that get negotiated and dictates the success of a good or bad real estate deal. Yeah, absolutely. Credit is king. Is that the is that the name of the pod for this week? Maybe that's the name of the pod. Credit what was is the king. other one we said? Starbucks something. What was the other one we said yesterday? Starbucks versus Sally Joe? No. No. <laughs> Get the joke. Credit is king. <laughs> Credit is Much king. Much more cut and dry. Much more cut and dry. All right. Thanks that for ra- joining us. Is that us? a wrap yeah, for I think today? that's a wrap. It's amazing how quickly we can we can bundle that up with no bourbon in the picture. No bourbon. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, obviously complicated world that we live in, but I'm glad we were able to talk about some current events. Mm-hmm. No bourbon today. No bourbon today. And maybe not next time or the next time, but I think four episodes from now we'll probably be back. Maybe we need, bourbon. we should, and maybe now's the time to invite a guest next week to drink with me. Yeah, we are, anybody out there that would like to come. If anybody wants to drink bourbon with Paige Myers, please contact us. Um, and the contact information's at the end. And we are, like uh, we just said, taking requests for guests or topics. And topics. A name for the podcast. Yeah, we're still looking Theme for music. a name. And we want to say thanks. It's been amazing that four podcasts in, there's people actually watching and asking when the next one's going to come out. So we hope you continue to enjoy it. And we're really grateful for having you listen in. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks.